Isaiah 46. I'm going to read it for you. Isaiah 46. And uh, reading from the NASB um, so that we can... <laughs> I guess we have to say that now, right? Yeah, old school NASB. Um, listen, and it says this, Bell has bowed down, Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over and they have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it and I will carry you. And I will bear you and I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me? that we would be alike, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it up upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there was no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay and I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. A wonderful text. We're going to look at all of chapter 46 this morning. And the title is Yahweh carries you. Yahweh carries you. You may have noticed if, if you read the anchored thought that I sent out to notice how many times the idea of carry is used in this passage I also mentioned uh, a great atrocity that um, is a part of our human history is the Armenian genocide. And I noted it because actually on what will be April 24th, 1915 was the beginning of it. And some have said that it's an atrocity for two different reasons. Um, one, because it occurred, and the other reason because it is denied. And one thing that happened during that genocide, that great atrocity, like has been true in other places around the world, that there were people were put on what were called death marches. And on those death marches, we can hear from 
or read from the memoirs of others where you had mothers that were trying to care for a child or father that was trying to care for loved ones to make sure that they could get there. The stronger that are helping the weaker, but sometimes uh, the weaker would not make it. Imagine that, a mother is trying to care for that child, keep marching, keep coming, and for a period of time they may try to carry the child until they can't anymore, and then the life is lost. Um, This is also true of occasions throughout history. Um, You would talk about um, uh, Native Americans here in America, and there was a, a march, if you will, of lands that were once theirs into places that they would be subjugated to. Uh, The same thing would be true if you were to find history in Africa, history in Asia, really history everywhere of great injustices. If we go to Europe just for a moment and we think particularly about World War II and those Jews that were marched in the same thing that was occurring, the weaker being carried at times by the stronger until the stronger became the weaker because they just didn't have enough strength to carry on. Yeah. Horrible incidents in history of man trying to carry the burden of another man. And that just has been resonating with me as I, you saw in my anchored thought. I, I wanted to take a deeper dive even into this episode of our world history. And I ordered a number of books and they have been arriving. And I had a general sense of what happened in well, beginning in 1915 officially. But I'm going to take a deeper dive this summer. And the reason I do things like that, I think it, identif- it helps me identify with the need for man, his sinfulness, what he will do to his fellow man. At times it's unimaginable. The irresponsibility that times that people have or they're unwilling to say, and even as I just briefly indicated, some of the history would tell us that the reason that that genocide began was because of three leaders at that time in the Ottoman Empire. And in part, one in particular, the general that was unwilling to face the reality of his defeat on the Eastern Front against the Russians because they had colluded with the Germans, and he was unwilling to face it. So there must be another problem. It cannot possibly be me. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar in our, in our culture today? It cannot possibly be me. And so history, I think, is right in that there was a collusion that essentially said, let's blame these Christians that are among us. Let's make for a pure Ottoman Empire. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. And so it began. Horrible story. Some I probably knew that was going to happen. Horrible stories. I mean, little, what, how do you take a baby and put it, wrap it up and throw it off a bridge into the Euphrates? And then eventually bodies begin to wash up on shore. And what is happening here? Um, men are sick. And perhaps what makes them more evil is when they don't accept responsibility for their actions. God is a great God. And he is a God that will forgive even the most egregious sins possible. He is a God that carries away our sins. 
He is a God that when we have the burden of our, our own shortcomings, and if we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will place those burdens upon himself because we have no capacity whatsoever to carry our own burdens. Do you agree with that? It only comes through Jesus Christ, only through him. And in Isaiah 46, we see really what is amounting to the final argument presented to the people of God that they should trust only in Yahweh. Here is the final argument saying to the people of God, beginning in Isaiah 40, and we're going to end in Isaiah 48, as I said we would, that Yahweh is superior to the gods of the land. Why would you trust him? And this has been repeated time and time again over the the course of us working our way through Isaiah 40 to 48. And in this passage, we're going to see here beautifully, there are five reasons, five reasons to trust Yahweh and discard any notion that anyone or anything is comparable to God. Any notion. There's not a person. There's not a thing. There's nothing in culture. There's nothing in society. There's nothing in religion that is divorced from the grace of God that can possibly intervene in your situation to save you. And the only way that you are saved is because God intervened in your life when we were all dead in our transgressions and sins, and by his multiple grace upon grace saved us. And we see this really restated here in this passage in Isaiah, that in fact Yahweh is the one that carries you. It is only he. First reason is this. Trust because false gods are unreliable. False gods are unreliable. Notice verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to see that we should trust because Yahweh is eternally faithful. Verses 3 and 4. Trust because Yahweh is beyond comparison. Trust because Yahweh controls all of history. And we should indeed trust because Yahweh is abundantly gracious. The gods are worthless. God is faithful. God is beyond comparison. God controls history and God is abundantly gracious. Amen? All these great truths. So let's consider the first one. Trust because false gods are unreliable. Verses 1 and 2. Notice again what it says. Bela has bowed down and Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beast and to the cattle. The things that are you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over and have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. The opening verses really here show this stark contrast between Yahweh and the gods of the land. I mean, they're utterly unreliable, and they're unreliable because they have no inherent power, and they have no inherent power because they are dead. They are not living beings. They are lifeless carvings that come from the sinful imaginations of men that want to create a God for themselves and not recognize the living God of the Bible. So what does Isaiah do? Isaiah highlights the impotence of these gods by shining a light on their inability in this simple sense to transport themselves. And he's saying it is utterly ridiculous that you would worship a God and surrender your future to a God that can't even transport themselves. You say, is it that plain? Yes, it's that plain. It really is. 
Notice what he says at first, though. You may be wondering, Bel and Nebo, who are they? Well, Bel are the gods of Babylon, and Bel will be considered the chief god of Babylon. He is the head of the pantheon of gods, and Nebo is his son. And what does he say here? Interesting how he uses the language. He goes a perfect tense. Bel is bowed down. He's wiped out. And then he says, Nebo, his son, is stooped over. And he, he uses a participle that's saying he's stooping over. He's crumbling even as these words are being written. And when you read them, he is going to be crumbling right before you because Cyrus is going to come and he's going to wipe out the Babylonians. And so what happens here? So now these images, the gods, the idols, are consigned to the beasts and to the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome. What does that mean? And literally what he is saying is that um, it was not unlike a conquered land that their deities would be placed and taken to another location. And what he's saying here is that Bel and Nebo, these great gods of Babylon who could not protect you, now they're consigned to the beasts and to cattle, which means they've been placed on a cart, and now they're being taken out of the city. They're defeated. And you remember from a couple of weeks ago, I said that the king of Babylon at the time, when he knew that the Persians were coming, Cyrus is mounting his strength. What does he do? He brings in all the gods from the lands to say that perhaps if the gods are here, they can protect us. But obviously they did not. Because what happened in 539 B.C., the Lord said, here is the time. Babylon will fall. Cyrus comes in. And history tells us very plainly, he came in really without a fight whatsoever. Because God had paved the way. And that's also consistent with what the word of God said elsewhere. All the way back in chapter 40, you remember we spent so much time there, and we did because it was laying the groundwork for everything else that would occur. And remember he says, God is going to make a way. He's going to make all things straight. Every valley is going to be lifted. Every mountain is going to be laid low. So this is him laying it all low. So he made a way for Cyrus to come in one sense, almost unencumbered to fulfill his word. And the great God Baal and the great god Nebo are absolutely impotent. And not only are they impotent, they have to be carried away on the back of a cart. And you would worship them, Israel? You would trust them, Judah? This makes no sense whatsoever. And you may hear me say that several times. This makes no sense whatsoever. You may hear me say several times before it's time for me to go. This is absurd. And it really is absurd. Men do things that are absolutely absurd without the divine intervention of God. You have done things that are absurd. And those of you that have known the Lord Jesus Christ a longer period of time or perhaps even a shorter period of time because you had years without Christ, you made decisions that were absurd. You looked at the data, you looked at the facts, and you thought, I'm not going to do that. You looked at the consequences that other people were facing. You saw, if I make this decision, most likely I will pay this price, but maybe it won't happen to finish the thought. It won't happen to me. Absurd. So this is not unusual. It's normal for humanity. And even my references to the great evils that men have done to men over the history of time, you say it's not only insidious, But it is absurd as well that you can treat your fellow man that way. 
So he says, now the gods who are supposed to be the ones that can carry a burden, notice what it says in the middle of verse 1. The things that you carry are burdensome. Now the beast are essentially saying, these gods are kind of heavy. And that's literally what Isaiah is saying here. Oh, that shouldn't be that way. How can a deity be heavy to a creature? But he's saying absolutely ridiculous that you would serve such gods which are not gods. And notice how he uses the language and how he switches the words. Because he says in verse 1, Bell is bowed down, Nebo stoops over. Then notice how he begins verse 2. He says, they have stooped over and they're bowed down. And right in the middle is, they're being carried and they're a burden. And the word for burden means like a man that's weary, they're tired, uh, they have no strength whatsoever. So the oxen are weighed down carrying your ridiculous gods and you would serve them. And notice what he says. A very direct statement he communicates here. They could not rescue the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. They couldn't help you. You cried out. The Babylonians cried out, and they couldn't help the Babylonians. Why do you suspect that they can help you? What's also interesting about um, here, Nebo, the son of Bel, um, that he was also the god of writing and wisdom, or some would say intellect, writing, and wisdom. And he would be likened to, when you think about the Roman and the Greek pantheon of gods, he would be likened to Hermes and Mercury. Hermes and Mercury are, would be the prophet of the gods. And so here Nebo is the prophet of the people. And history also tells us, it's very plainly uh, disseminated, that once a year, Nebo would, be, would come along with Baal, and that's really who it is, the Phoenician Baal, if you will. They would come into the city, and they would be paraded before everyone. And supposedly Nebo, he would write on what was called sort of the scrolls of destiny. Here is your destiny, O Babylon. Now, oh boy, he messed up, didn't he? He didn't write that your destiny is Cyrus is going to come and going to destroy you. Do you think Nabal wrote that on the tablets? Actually, they're called the tablets of destiny. No, he did not. And so now the people of God would have known it. The Babylonians would have known that that was their, their tradition. And they would read this and think, look at God's word come true. God's word is true. Do you believe that today? <laughs> Do you believe every page of it today, every word of it today, every iota today? You must. And here, these gods are totally impotent. Mercury, he is no prophet. Hermes is no prophet. Nabo is no prophet. If you're a true prophet, then speak the future. And this is what Isaiah was saying earlier if you're really a God, tell me, declare to me what is about to take place. And then there's silence because they cannot. And that's why even in the book of Acts, you remember in the book of Acts says, uh, Paul is preaching and the people want to exalt them as gods. And they say, well, they're like Hermes because they, they are a prophet that is speaking from God. They speak with eloquence, but Nabo does not. 
So now instead of being paraded in with all this pomp and circumstance, they're kind of loaded on the back of a cart and they're rolled away. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Listen to this. There's even more confusion about these gods. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I, I told you about what is called the Cyrus Cylinder and discovered and gives a very interesting account of the life of Cyrus and circumstances surrounding it. And it says this of Marduk, uh, a Babylonian god. It says, Marduk scanned all the countries for a righteous ruler, pronounced the name Cyrus ruler of the world. The only problem with the Cyrus cylinder is that this is written after the effect. If, you're, if Marduk was really a god like Yahweh, he would speak ahead of time and be able to say that Cyrus is actually going to come and conquer you. No, but he could not because he's worthless. That's what he is. Turn to the book of Judges. It's amazing how people will follow a God that they have, to, they have created. And this is why we even saw earlier, if you will, in the word of God, how, how is it that you take a portion of wood, uh, you warm yourself with it, you cook a meal with it, and with the leftovers, what do you do? You create a God and you bow down and worship to it. Utterly ridiculous. So it's all coming to a head. Everything that he's been saying for all of these chapters is coming to a head. Are you listening to me, Israel? Are you listening to me? Are you listening to me? And it's going to reach its apex in chapter 48, where he's essentially going to say, you're absolutely obstinate, yet I will still save you. But he says at the end of chapter 48, he makes this, and we'll go there even later, there is no peace for the wicked. Go your own way and see what happens. Judges 6, Judge, Judges 6, skip right past it there. Judges 6, notice if you will, it says, um, verse 28, When the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah, which was beside it, was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and acquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah, which was beside it. And I love this response. You have to love it. Verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. And what he's saying, are you, how dare you say that you need to speak for the great ball? If you speak for the great ball, you should be put to death. He doesn't need your help. Notice the play. Oh, I love the play on the psychological play here. It's beautiful. Because he's nothing. Because he's worthless. And this is Isaiah's point here. He's almost like he's saying, guys, these gods are in the back of a cart being taken away by oxen. And you would worship them. It's foolish. 
They have no ability whatsoever. Look at Isaiah 46. I'm sorry, 45. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, 17. It is God who is the one with ability. Verse 15 says, Truly you are God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them. The manufacturers of idols will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation and will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. Why? Because he will do what he has set his mind to do. So the first point is this. We should trust in the people God will call to trust because the false gods are totally unreliable. Number two is this. Trust because Yahweh is eternally faithful. Yahweh is eternally faithful. What does God do? God speaks again and makes his case. And what is this case? That only he is capable of bearing this burden. Only the Lord. No, he states it emphatically. Notice the language of verse 3. It starts off by saying, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. And of course, the remnant, now he's referring to the southern tribes. The northern tribes, of course, before had been taken away by Syria. Now they have been released or will be released. And now here, the statement that now you need to listen to me. This is important. Notice verse 12, and we'll come back to this in a moment. Notice verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted. Hear what I have to say. And again, this is Isaiah's final plea. Will you hear what I'm saying to you? See how utterly ridiculous it is. Your life is at stake. Your future is at stake. Your soul is at stake. Now, let's bring that thought into contemporary life. Have you not ever shared with someone the gospel and you're saying to them, listen to me, friend. Listen to me. Your eternal destiny is at stake. Oh, but I've always known the Lord. No, friend, that is not possible. Listen to me. And they say something like this. And you say, well, I think that I'm okay. On what basis are you okay? Because I'm not like other what? What do they say? Other people. Listen to me, friend. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Isaiah is saying to here for God. Listen, O house of Jacob. And what does he do? The words are here encouraging. They're encouraging words. Notice what he says. You have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Intimate words that he gives here. Born. Um, in Deuteronomy 1 and 31, it refers to to be born, to be carried, to, to be nestled, if you will. In Deuteronomy 1, 31, it's of a father that's carrying a child. In Psalm 28 and 9, it's of a shepherd that's carrying a lamb. And interesting enough, if you go to Deuteronomy 32, 11, it's an eaglet. It's uh, an eagle caring for its eaglets, and God is likening himself to that eagle that's caring for its eaglets. I will care for you. And then look with me at Isaiah 63. So it's like a father carrying a child, like a shepherd that carries a lamb, like an eagle that carries the eaglets, are these images of being born by me. Isaiah 63. And it sort of wraps up all of these thoughts together in Isaiah 63 and verse 9. And it says, 
In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them and carried them all the days of old. Amen. (laughs) Despite their affliction, in the midst of their affliction, and despite their rebellion, he says, I lifted them up. Look with me. You have to notice this. Look at Psalm 71. Psalm 71 is beautiful. Notice what he says in Psalm 71. He says, verse 7, we'll begin there, 71.7. I have become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long why? Why, would, why should our mouth be filled with the glory of God and, and praise of God? Well, he tells us right here in verse 9, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails, he says. Then notice verse 18, And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me, until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. That's a beautiful promise, isn't it? And what he's saying, the psalmist is writing, God, don't forsake me. And he knows in one sense that he will not, but he still cries out to the Lord for this affirmation. And there's also a practical implication for all of us today. And we might say also a practical application as well. And it is this. In your life, the psalmist, if we agree with the psalmist, what he's essentially saying is this. God, give me more life. Not that I can simply have life for the sake of it. Give me more life so that I can do what? Tell others that you are faithful. Amen? We are, especially here in Southern California, I mean, we are, we have a fetish when it comes to living life better, right? Don't we? Uh, You go on the internet and you know how to beat age. How to beat, you know, mother, father time. Uh, Guess what? It wins, amen? And some of you are feeling it right now, aren't you? Man, time is winning. Because <laughs> you, are you, you're at that stage in life where your mind is okay, but your body is not? <laughs> Raising of hands, right? Just say, oh, Baptist, amen, right now. Just say amen, right? Some of you, amen, right? It's like my mind is like, do it! And my body says, do it. <laughs> that's how it works now what are you laughing at you're entirely too young you're not even in that stage yet you're still at that do it do it stage right some of us are at the do it do it stage that's right (laughs) but what he's saying is that God you're a faithful God even when I gray give me more life so that I can tell others God has been faithful all of my years And if you've known the Lord 10 years, how many of you have known the Lord for 10 years at least? How about 20? Anyone known the Lord for 30 years, 40 years? That you can say for 40 years, God has been what? Faithful. And he he gives me another 10 years. You can say then, God has been what? Faithful. Faithful until the end. And this is what God is saying to the people of God. These, These idols are utterly worthless. They cannot even save themselves. They cannot even transport themselves. And you would worship them and not me? 
And notice again, go back to the text. We have to be in the text, do we not? Notice what it says in verse 4. He states it there, even to your old age. And really, it's not in the text. If you look at your Bibles, you see that it's italicized. It's really saying, even to old age, he says, I will be the same. Yeah. All of us are changing. We just talked about some of our physical changes that are taking place. We're changing, but God is not. Sometimes people change in their commitments to you, but God does not. Sometimes people change because they're, they're not a consistent friend, but God is a consistent friend. He does not change. He is the same. And notice how he inf- four times emphatically stated, emphatically in that he puts I in front, I will. Notice he says, I will be the same. What else does it say? I will bear you. I will carry you. I will deliver you. It's only the Lord. Amen. And we must remind ourselves of that. All that we have, all that we are, all that we will be is only because of the gracious hand of a loving God. And this is what's being communicated here. He is this creating Savior. Turn with me to Isaiah 43. Looking at my time here, I think I'll do it. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, 7. He says, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I I have formed, even whom I have made. This reminder. He is the creating God. Look at Isaiah 44 and verse 2. Emphasize here again. Again, it starts verse 1. But now listen, there's that word again, listen, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb and who will help you. Do not fear. Don't fear. Why would you fear? I'm your supporter. Why would you fear? I'm your helper. Why would you fear? I'm the one that carries you. Why would you fear? I'm the one that created you. Why would you fear? Because my divine purposes will unfold in your life. I am the creating Savior. So he shows here this stark contrast between Yahweh and these gods. Yahweh will bear you. The idols cannot. It requires a beast to carry them around. Yahweh will deliver you. They can't even deliver themselves. Here's a third reason to trust. Trust because Yahweh is beyond comparison. Go back to Isaiah 46. He is beyond comparison. So he says in verse 5, then continuing his argument, to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike, likened, uh, can be used. And some translations actually have here compare. And English translations um, probably could have done a better job with being consistent, but nonetheless, likened. Uh, this idea of resemblance, it, it can refer to like a parent and a child. You ever notice that? You say, oh, man, it looked just like you. Oh, my word. So glad he looks like his mom. <laughs> <laughs> right? Resemblance that's there. And what he's saying here, is there, what's the comparison? Are you comparing Yahweh to Bel? Are you comparing Yahweh to Nebo? Are you comparing Yahweh to Hermes? Are you comparing Yahweh to Mercury? And the list goes on and on and on. Of course, I've gone out of the, the Babylon Pantheon into the Greek and Roman, but you get my point. 
No, there is nothing you can't say. Oh, you kind of look like Yahweh. You kind of act like Yahweh. You have tendencies like Yahweh. Because that comes out as well in parenting, does it not? That is an amazing thing just about creation itself. Oh, my. How does that happen? I mean, there are just things where, oh, my word. He is so like you. She is so like you. Whatever the Lord does in that, he does, and it's a marvelous thing. I mean, we can get understand that you see features, but then there are tendencies as well. Like, oh, no, it's a reversal. She's like dad, he's like mom. How did that happen? That's the Lord. That's his creative power. And so we can say likeness, and God is saying, there is no likeness to me. No one. Don't even begin the conversation. And so he says, you're going to make him my equal? Of course not. It's simply put, am I on the same level as, as Bel and, and Nabo? No, I am not. Will you compare me? Are there some similarities? No, there are not. And so he goes on to say, verse 6, he goes again, here's the utterly ridiculous thing about creating your gods, those who lavish gold from the purse and waste silver on the scale. That is, you take your gold from your purse and you pay to create a god and someone makes it for you. So what do you do? You hire a goldsmith and you make it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. Now notice the play on words. Notice what he says, that word bow down. Where do we see that word bow down? Baal has bowed down. And you would bow down to a God who is bowing down to my sovereign plan? It makes no sense whatsoever. But this is the human mind. This is the futile mind. This is what Paul would say. You know, all of us, our mind, we were given to futility. This is what Solomon would say. Vanity of vanity. All is what? Is vanity. Yeah, I mean, I saw, I'll just, it's in the moment, but, I, you know, I do that from time to time in the moment. Uh, Chicago, kids going utterly ridiculous, what these kids were doing. I'm not sure if you saw that on the news. Almost taking downtown Chicago parts of it hostage. Utterly ridiculous. And I thought, what has happened to society? Where are the parents? Where are the leaders? And then the mayor-elect for Chicago, he's, he gives no responsibility for these kids whatsoever. As a matter of fact, he says, well, that's what happens when you're trying to put food on your table. You're a liar. These kids are not struggling to put food on their table. They were assaulting people. Uh, they were tearing up property. They were looting. This is not about hunger. This is about a corrupt heart. And there was an unwillingness to accept responsibility for it. That's today. You say to yourself, surely everyone sees the issue. Surely the leader of the city is going to say, if you come out here again, we will be in full force. We're going to protect the innocent. No, not at all. The human mind uh, without God does the most ridiculous things. And then I saw in the state of Nebraska now, I saw, initially I just saw the video of it. I didn't know the context initially. I saw these women and some so-called men with them um, that are in tears and, and these supposedly tears of joy and they're hugging one another. And they're saying, "How what a wonderful day it is because now they're saying, now we can surely, we have fought for our right to abort children. 
So if, if it's a silent clip, you would say, oh, man, a, wonder, a wonderful thing must have happened. Look at the applause. Look at these tears of joy. But that's the human heart. Here's our third consideration. Fourth. Wow, that's good, because I looked, I thought, oh, my, third. I'm in, <laughs> I'm in real trouble. <laughs> I'm in real trouble. You may have to stay a little bit long. No, but go back to verse 3, the third, just a little bit, because notice what he says. This is important. Verse 7, they lifted upon the shoulder and carry it. So before, the beasts were carrying it. Now, the, this God that you just use your resources for, and you hired a, you hired a goldsmith, and now you bow down to it, all the way it's going to bow down to God's sovereign plan, and you worship it, and you put it on your shoulders and carry it home. That's ridiculous. I told you I was going to say it a number of times. That's like me going to a car dealership. You know, I like that one right there, blue. I like the color interior. How do I get it home? Um, I don't know. You push it. How many of you would buy a car like that? Thank you. That's good news. None of you would buy a car like that. Say, you know, how do you get it home? No, you have to carry it. You can call AAA. They can tow it for you. That's how ridiculous it is. But they don't see it. And this is what happens. This is why Scripture tells us that the God of this world has blinded the minds of people. Stubbornness will do that. What's interesting, too, is notice what he says. Um, You cry to it, it can't answer. It cannot deliver from distress. God is going to carry you. A beautiful word, Isaiah 53, 4. He carried our sorrows. And I told you it was interesting how the Lord orchestrated our singing. He carried our sorrows. One scholar in, um, in the Journal of Biblical Literature stated that the word carry here can carry this idea of maybe a legal obligation. A legal obligation. Because the scripture does tell us that, you know, when we're older, we're supposed to take care of our what? Of your parents. Take care of your parents. And if you don't do it, and that's why God even indicted um, the religious leaders. They say, well, what I was going to give to the Lord, you know, it's, it's already obligated. I, I can't, I can't, no, I'm sorry, it's reverse. What I was going to do to help my parents, I've given it to the Lord because I'm a religious person. You've undone the law by that act. And some of you, you know, you, you're maybe at a stage in life or you've gone through a stage in life, you have to take care of your parents in their old age. And God is saying, in your old age, I'm committed to caring for you. Why? Because I'm Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Number four, the fourth reason. Trust because Yahweh controls history. He controls history. God is beyond comparison. Here's this, perhaps his final appeal to say, please listen. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, he says. Remember the former things, for I'm God and there is no other. Declaring, notice, declaring, saying, and calling. Declaring is the big picture. So he goes from the general down to the specific. And what's the specific? So he says, I'm declaring, then I'm saying that all my good pleasure will be performed. And then specifically, verse 11 calling a bird of prey from the east. Who is the bird of prey? Cyrus. Some have, um, because history does tell us as well that the 
the emblem for Cyrus was actually an eagle on the end of a spear. So they thought, e, even in the detail about a bird of prey, I'm not sure that that's what is um, happening here. It could be that God was that specific about it. But most likely, it's just the idea, a bird of prey is this idea, one that would swoop down in stealth and pick up its prey. And Cyrus is going to be that. Why? Because I've given him the nations. He's fulfilling my will. And notice what else he says. We are to remember and stand firm. Remembering is important because we tend to do what? We forget. I I looked up a very interesting article from the Mayo Clinic about dimension. I don't have time to give you the details of it. But essentially, when we think about dementia, it's not a disease. Diseases will cause it. But in a nutshell, it's going to be caused by the damage to brain cells. And the different ways that that can happen. Of course, uh, one one begins to show signs of dementia. One thing that can be lost is what? Is, Is memory. Yeah, the cognitive ability. And it can be cruel. Actually, it can be cruel. I've known people, counseled with people. My wife, at one point in time, worked in an office where that was helping patients and the families in particular deal with the loved ones that may be experiencing it. And in one sense, it's quite cruel. Because, I mean, I just can't imagine that one day, I mean, my, by that time, my great-grandson would come into the room and I'd say, and I wouldn't know who they are. Or someone would say to me, hey, Pastor Carl, you remember that time when you preached through Isaiah? Like, Isaiah? <laughs> like, no. Then you say, something's really wrong. I just, that would be hard. Or your loved ones, someone you have seen with people, some, they've been married 40, 50 years, and their loved one doesn't really remember them. Yeah. And I don't want to be trite with an illustration like that. I want you to get a, to hear a point. Because sometimes we can, you know, okay, that's an interesting bit of information. Then we trans, you know, easily go back to the spiritual point. But there is something for us to consider. We have to remember that God is faithful. And at times God has to say it again and again and again and again. So that we don't do what? Forget. He says, stand firm. Interesting word. Um, it's the only time that we find it in Scripture, this word for stand firm. In the Nazareth, it says assured. It is better stand firm. But there are other, I uh, read someone that said there are 10 possibilities in how we could understand this word. So I'm most definitely not going to go through them all. Uh, I just think the best way to look at it is to stand firm. Remember it. Be firm. God is in control. Be firm. I, my plan will unfold. The scripture tells us throughout, 1 Corinthians 16, be firm in the faith. 1 Thessalonians, be firm in the Lord. And even Jesus Christ, um, in the revelation of Christ, in Revelation says, hold fast until I come. Remember and trust me. The last point to be made is this. Verse 12. Again, he goes back, he says, listen, trust because Yahweh is abundantly gracious. Again, he says, listen, here's this indictment. You're stubborn hearted. You're far from my righteousness. But notice, here is God's graciousness. If they're far from righteousness, then what is going to happen? You remember Isaiah has told us elsewhere that your righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. 
And surely for them, because they're a stubborn people. They're following idols. But here is God's grace. Notice verse 13. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. My salvation won't delay. I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. Because it doesn't read this way. It doesn't say, listen to me, O stubborn hearted. You who are far from righteousness, when you repent, when you put in line your understanding about idols and how great I am, when you recall all of these things, when you put away every idol that you have, then my righteousness will come. He says, no, I'm going to show you grace, although you're undeserving. Now, don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean that God is not calling us to repent, but God is saying, I'm a gracious God. And even God granting your repentance is an act of grace, is it not? Because we wouldn't do it on our own. A final thought for you. The ultimate burden that's carried. Go with me to Isaiah 53. I told you that earlier in 53.4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. There's our word for today, carried Yet he himself, or we ourselves, esteemed and stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted him. And what is verse 4 saying? That when we looked at him, we knew he was being punished, and we thought he was being punished for something he had done. No, he's being punished for what we had done. And this is why it says in verse 5, it's our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chasing for our well-being fell upon him. And notice this language here. Remember, it started out, here is Bel and Nabo. They're being put on a cart, and they're being transported away. Uh, the burdens, literally the, the cattle and the oxen and whatever they may have been, felt the burden of the weight itself from these gods. And now this language is similar. All of our sin fell upon him. By his scourgings, we are healed. Notice verse 11, though. Because what you see in verses 12 and 13 of 46 is God's undeniable grace to justify people who are undeserving. In verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Amen. (laughs) All right. Amen. Amen. Uh, Somebody was listening. (laughs) Uh, Yahweh will carry you. Why should you fear? Yahweh will carry you. There's nothing in the world, no one in the world that should come before him. Men are wicked and they're evil and they do evil things to people. But God can forgive even the most egregious of sin. Yahweh carries you, and it says, even into your old age. Amen? Father, we thank you for these words you give us, your goodness and grace that you show us. Thank you that you carry us. You come to us, and you carry us until the end. Amen.